Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. Have a, a great show for you today. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a great day to be tuning in. And if you're a regular listener, you're going to be happy that you made it again today. We've got an amazing Grateful Dead show to talk about. Uh, we're joined by uh, Jamie Humiston in a little while to talk about his experiences at Borderland out in New York a week or two ago already now and uh, give us a rundown on what he saw out there. Uh, some big news in the world of marijuana, not surprisingly, a lot of government people getting in the way again and causing everybody headaches. Um, but before we do that, 43 years ago today, September 25th, 1980, the Grateful Dead played in the Warfield Theater uh, in San Francisco. Uh, it was the first night of about a 15-night run at the Warfield through the middle of October. Uh, they then moved on to Radio City Music Hall in New York, uh, where they recorded more, uh, the results of which were the Reckoning Acoustic Album and the Dead Set Electric Album. And we're focusing on acoustic today from this first acoustic set on September 25th. And let's go straight to the first tune. Let's paint the scene here. You get into Radio City Music Hall in New York on September 25th, 1980. Very, very small uh, venue, relatively speaking, for Grateful Dead fans. So you're already uh, loving loving how your night is going. And you know that it's going to be an acoustic set and two electric sets. Um, and this is exciting because they haven't done acoustic sets since uh, 1970, maybe early 1971. It was a stretch there. Uh, where they would do shows with an acoustic set followed by two electric sets and often accompanied by the new writers of the Purple Sage. Uh, these shows were went back to that format of an acoustic set and then two full electric sets. And this was the first acoustic set of the first night of the first show of the whole damn run. And they come out and they open up with Birdsong. And you know, Birdsong is just an absolutely amazing song from Garcia's very first solo album, Garcia, released back on January 20th, 1972. Uh, and this is the crazy thing about this show, and uh, we'll, we'll get to more of these points in a moment. This was the first time that the Grateful Dead had played the song since September 15th, 1973, or 382 shows ago. Um, that's a long time uh, for a song that ultimately the Dead wound up playing over 300 times in concert, uh, first back on February 19th, 1971 at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, and then uh, the final time was June 30th, 1995 at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, uh, Hunter originally wrote the song, the lyrics is a tribute to Janis Joplin, 
um, which uh, all of us deadheads uh, know it as. Although uh, when Phil sings it with Phil and friends, he often says, all I know is something like a bird within him saying, uh, transferring the focus over to uh, Jerry, which is fine. You know, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, Jerry's part of all of that too, and I'm sure Janice wouldn't mind either. Uh, but it is important to note that, uh, you know, this was a song that was written about Janice. Um, and during a period of time uh, where the dead and, and Janice and all others had been spending a lot of time together. That was the uh, uh, the great uh, train trip across Canada um, when they were all on board there and uh, had all spent lots of time together and all knew each other very well from the uh, San Francisco psychedelic scene and hanging out in Haight-Ashbury and the various neighborhoods out there where they lived. Um, and then she was gone and they uh, they wrote the song. She, again, was part of the 27 Club, which we touched on uh, uh this past week uh we mentioned that briefly because uh it's unfortunate and it's out there for some reason it's a number that always seems to come up but uh the dead played the tune for a while uh and then they 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 put it to bed and then they brought it back why well because i think garcia always viewed it more as an acoustic tune than an electric tune and now that they were going to be doing a whole set of acoustic shows boom, they pull out the song. And as you're going to see, they did that with a lot of numbers. It was like, geez, if we had known this, you could have done acoustic sets for us a long, long time ago. Um, so this version, I, to me, is amazing, both because it is acoustic and Jerry's voice is so strong. It, it makes you fall in love with the song all over again. Or as our good friend one Arm Larry would say, taste it again for the first time. Although I don't think he was talking about this song or any song when he said that at Deer Creek back in 1989. Um but uh, with this version, all of a sudden, Birdsong is back in the uh, repertoire, uh, and they would play it throughout the acoustic sets on these uh, two incredibly long runs of shows, and then it would just make its way back into the regular sets uh, for those of us that didn't start singing until a year or two after after this historic run. Um, we always just knew it as an electric tune, uh, typically a first set tune that the boys would really go to town on. And one of the first songs that I heard the dead play where I, I had what the fish heads call a true uh, phase two or type two or whatever it is jam where uh, when they circled back around at the very end uh, all I know is something like a bird within her saying you're like oh right that's the song they were playing uh, but here you know when it's acoustic it, it's it's not like that it's just it's just great and uh, uh, really a beautiful tune and, and really nice so continuing in this vein uh, this is the second song of the show and and uh, our next tune I've Been All Around This World is another excellent, excellent acoustic tune. Uh, first again played by the dead way back in uh, 1969 on December 19th at the Fillmore West. Uh, last played on December 31st, 1980 at the Oakland Civic Auditorium uh, during the New Year's run, actually on New Year's Eve. Um, 
but it was only played a total of 19 times in concert. And incredibly, uh, this show again, the first acoustic show on the tour, was the first time the song had been played by the Dead in Concert since February 14th, 1970, a span of 706 shows. And Jerry brings it back, and it just sounds as great as ever. Um, the origins of this song are, are, are not easy to trace. It it may arrive, actually be a combination from a number of different songs. Uh, Hang Me, Oh, Hang Me verse, uh, which we didn't hear in this version, is thought to derive from the traditional song, My Father Was a Gambler, which is thought to be about a murderer who was hanged in 1870. By the way, I played this verse because uh, Lulu is the nickname that we have for our good friend Linda in St. Louis, uh, who is a dear part of our family and has been there to provide such wonderful service for my mom and now my father, and we really think the world of her. So anytime we can give a shout out to Lulu, we have to do it. Um, the Dead's version of this song is traditional, is, is always cited as traditional, arranged by the Grateful Dead, and the, the guys from back in the day all get credit for it. So that's uh, uh, Jerry, Bobby, Phil, Mickey, Billy, and Pigpen. Um, he was still the, the man there, so it was kind of like a group effort, uh, and it was released. Uh, the only time it's actually formally been released by the Grateful Dead was on uh, the History of the Grateful Dead, Volume 1, uh, which is known as Bear's Choice, a live album by the Grateful Dead. At the time, it was their fourth live album, their ninth album overall. Uh, it was released in July 1973 on Warner Brothers Records. It offers concert highlights recorded on February 13th and 14th, 1970 at the Fillmore East in New York City. Often known simply as, Bear, as Bear's Choice, uh, the title references band Soundman Owsley Bear Stanley. Uh, it was originally intended to be the first volume of a series. Of course, everyone knows Owsley as the manufacturer of the uh, original and best uh, uh, LSD that was always floating around on the West Coast in the 1960s and 1970s. And uh, uh, Owsley had many talents, not only in the, in the laboratory, uh, but also uh, acting as one of the original sound uh sound men for the uh, for the grateful dead and so uh they kind of dedicated this one to him as you know bear's choice um and february 13th and 14th is a string of shows that was actually released by the grateful dead on i want to say the original dick's pick series i want to say it, it was volume three or four i don't recall which but uh they have good chunks of both shows and uh it, it is a great show and it's a lot of fun to listen to um but uh this song hasn't been played in, uh, they're coming out to play this. It hasn't been played in 10 and a half years. Um, and Jerry just nails it. You know, he's a musician. This is what he does. This is, it's not, you know, he's not just uh, a guy running around playing a, a playlist that gets played over and over to the point where you kind of forget about what you're playing. You know, he's, he's actually really, uh, it, 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 it means something to him, not just because he wrote it, but because, you know, there's ways to play the song. And if you're going to pull it back after 10 years, you damn well better give some effort. Uh, and he does. And it's, you know, it's wonderful to hear Jerry's voice at that point. Even by the time I started seeing him a couple of years later, there was already getting a few cracks in there and just not this, this really, really uh, sweet voice almost. And if you listen uh, to Reckoning or even just go online and pull down any of these shows, uh, there's a lot of tremendous harmonizing that goes on as well. Uh, we may have that in a few of our shows coming up, uh, and we will get back to those. But um, now I want to take a little bit of a right turn here because we are nothing if not all about music on this uh, on this podcast. And although for us music uh, very often means the Grateful Dead, it often means a lot of other bands. And uh, um, you know, Goose, uh, Tranastasio Band, Mo, so there's just all sorts of them that are out there, uh, and and 
whenever people all get together with talent uh, to put on a, uh, a festival of music, it's a wonderful thing, right? And it all kind of started with Woodstock way back in the day, although that's not probably fair uh, to say uh, Monterey Pop Festival was out there. And there had been a whole bunch of other ones, but Woodstock gets all the credit for really going hardcore, I think, with a rock and roll festival. And uh, festivals have kind of come and gone over the years. Uh, Deadheads always lamented that the Dead themselves never really did much of a festival. Now Dead & Company every year does their festival. They had been doing it. Uh, going down to Mexico every year, like as a lot of uh, a lot of bands do these days, they have their their Mexico festivals and uh, during the winter months, and and uh, a lot of uh, fans of the music like to go down and do that. But you know, actual festivals right here, it's either in your backyard, or you can get in a car and drive to, or uh, maybe some combination of both. Uh, but Borderland Music and Arts Festival uh, is one that celebrates the history and the Renaissance of the region, which is East Aurora, New York, just outside of Buffalo with a three-day music and cultural festival set in one of the most scenic and storied grounds in all of New York State, Knox Farm State Park. And I want to welcome to the show uh, Jamie Humiston, who might have some relation to our producer, Dan Humiston, but we're never really sure about that. Uh, so, Jamie, welcome. You were at uh, Borderland. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Tell us a little bit about it. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, so, last week, I was up in East Aurora, New York at the Borderland Music Festival, we got a lot to talk about, man. There's, there's, where do I even start? So this was my first time going to Borderland and, you know, it's kind of surreal because that park, Knox Park is one of my favorite parks in the whole world. I mean, it is maybe 10 minutes from where I grew up. So it's like, it's basically in my backyard, you know, it's, it was, it's very easy to get to. And just to kind of see that place, which is already beautiful and super scenic, transform into this national music festival, it was a real treat to be able to experience. Um, so I guess I'll just go through each of the days. Yeah, uh, please. Yeah. So Friday, I think, was my favorite day of the festival. I'm, I'm a little biased. The openers for the, the entire festival, the very first band, uh, is my friend's band, The Stovepipes. And Oh, wow. Yeah, they were the, you know, the, he, uh, the guitarist and singer Riley, he grew up in, in the area. Uh, the band formed in Lake Tahoe, uh, and they, they have been playing the festival for two years. But they played several Grateful Dead songs. I know they played they played Deal, they played Sugaree, uh, they played a couple other ones, but uh, they, were, they were awesome. So shout out to the Stovepipes. And then following them... Um, I got to see the 502s, which are very kind of ska influenced, but they they had a great set. You know, they were so much fun to see. Uh, following them, I was checking out the Not Fade Away band, oh. which were doing a they were doing a Dead Zeppelin set. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. They were doing the music of the Grateful Dead and Led Zeppelin, <laughs> and, and they would transition from tracks, which I thought... I thought it was really cool. You know, you wouldn't think those two bands would work well together, but they made it really seamless. So it was really cool to see that. Very nice. Yeah. And then the the band that played uh, before Goose was Dawes. Sure. And I'd, I had known a couple of Dawes songs, but they were incredible. I mean, they had such a great set. Um Rick from Goose uh, sat in with Dawes for one of their tracks, um, which was really, really cool to see. And then Goose was the headliner for Friday. And I've heard you guys hype up Goose. 
I've heard all my jam band friends hype up Goose. So I had a lot of expectations going into Goose. And I got to tell you, I'm sold. I'm, I am fully on the Goose bus. They were probably my favorite set I saw all week. I was absolutely blown away by all of them. You know, Rick, Peter, the keyboard player, all those dudes are just such solid musicians. And they just literally controlled the whole crowd. I mean, everybody was was feeling goose that night. Yeah, I think they've really kind of come into their own over the last six months or so. Uh, when we saw them earlier this year at uh, the Salt Shed in Chicago, I was really impressed with the way uh, they were able to carry the entire show over two sets. And, you know, they just have that that great, uh, jam ability like fish where it's, it, it's, it's even, it's even less, uh, structured, um, you know, than what the dead used to do. And, uh, and these guys just kind of take it and push the limits of it really to the point where you're just, you know, no idea what they were playing before. Cause they're, whatever they're playing now sounds so great. And, you know, then all of a sudden they snap you back in and they are, they're tremendous musicians. And look, Rick plays with everybody. Now he's played uh, with Trey a lot. He played with uh, dead and company. Um, he he's in demand and, and well-deserved. Uh, that band is really is making it on the scene. Um, so overall your, your first goose experience was a positive one too, huh? Oh, 100%. Yeah, they were, they absolutely blew my mind. You know, they sure. opened with a uh, flow down, went into Mr. Action, played a cover of Pancakes by the Great Blue. Uh, they played a Father John Misty track. They had, um, and one of the the highlights for me during um, Rosewood Heart, they brought out Taylor and Griffin from Dawes to sit in with them, which I think we actually have a clip of, uh, if you want to take a listen to that real quick. Sure, let's do that. Yeah, that's great stuff, man. You know, I hear that and I'm ready to just kick back for the night and listen to those guys jam out. That's wonderful stuff. Yeah, they were uh, they were on fire during that. You know, it just the energy there was just it, just so in, it was incredible, you know. And like I, I got to say, like, I was super impressed with Rick, but I was like blown away by their keyboard player. Pete, I think Peter, he was he's phenomenal i mean he's just like got like this crazy rack of keys and he is just going i mean all of them too like their bassist their drummer i mean they're just like a well we love peter did he did he still have the uh the porn mustache going yeah he had the porn mustache <laughs> the porn stash look yeah we love that yeah he's he, he's he's just having a ball he i love it when he's sitting there pounding on the keyboards with the guitar strapped around his back, then all of a sudden flips it around and plays the guitar. And yeah, and he jumps from one keyboard to the other keyboard. He, he's got it down. He's really good. Oh yeah. He was, he was awesome. It was a great set. That's really, and I'm sure that they just get a tremendous, uh, uh, crowd reaction when they go out there. I mean, I'm, you know, probably, you know, I, I'd be fair to say that certainly on that night, the majority of the people who are there, although they're all happy to see everybody else, you know, we're 
we want to see Goose, we're going to see Goose and we'll happily listen to anybody else who happens to be on the bill that night. Um, and, you know, when you're a headliner and you, and you demand that kind of following, that's a good thing, too. But I always like these festivals because there's always going to be a group of people who didn't go to see Goose. They went to see, you know, one of these other bands that you're talking about, who anybody else who was there or, you know, like you say, they live in the area and they just thought, well, there's going to be a, a festival here. Let's go check it out. And so they come to Goose with zero context at all. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, Goose starts playing. And to me, that's the best sign when people like that all of a sudden get really hooked and are like, wow. I don't know who these guys were. I didn't know they were going to be here, but I can't get enough of them. And I think Goose has that kind of pulling power. Fish had it. The Grateful Dev ha had it. And, you know, it, it's harder and harder these days, I think, for, for musical acts to have it because everything is so much about, you know, at least what I can tell as a, you know, old dude, as my kids will call me. But, you know, it's all, you know, electronic and, and, and a lot of it is, you know, much shorter songs, not unlike when we were growing up in the standard, you know, rock song was three and a half minutes, maybe four, if it, you know, it was extended play or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're listening to the Grateful Dead and Fish, you know, who take the same song and, you know, and stretch it out for 25 minutes. And, you know, some people like that and some people don't, but those of us that do are like, where has this been all of my life? And what I love is that, you know, guys like Goose are considerably younger than I am, um, you know, probably by close to 40 years. And yet, you know, they have the same appreciation for this kind of music and, and, and this whole style that I've had for all of this time, you know, in, in fact, predated them. But of course, I have absolutely zero talent to express it other than flapping my mouth and talking about it. And, you know, these guys can actually walk up on stage and, you know, pull out the instruments and and recreate the sound. And, and I I love that. And I say, thank God, because that's how, you know, Jamie, people, you know, you're the same uh, generation as my kids and that, you know, they love Goose and they love Fish. And for them, they, you know, they've really been captivated by this type of music. And, you know, not that they don't love the Grateful Dead. They do. But, you know, the Grateful Dead isn't doing concerts anymore. And, and, and Goose and Fish are. And I think that's just uh, that's huge for people. Oh, 100 percent. You know, it, it very much so felt like, you know, the kind of next generation of great jam band music, you know, because those guys are like around my age you know they're they're young guys yeah. and just to kind of see them kind of take you know not just like doing what you know bands like the because everyone's like oh like rick's the next tray you know they're the next fish you know i'm just like i don't like those kind of comparisons because i'm just like this is just like the next evolution of like where the music's going you know and it felt it felt fresh and new and of course they're pooling influence from you know their heroes and people they look up to but sure it just kind of felt like the natural you know evolution of like where the music's going and just to kind of see them kind of carry the torch like that was really really cool well but but see i think you hit the nail on the head there because if if uh if fish had come out and tried to recreate the grateful dead sound or you know cover a bunch of grateful dead they, they might have been popular for a while but then they would have been brushed aside for the next group or the group after that but that wasn't their thing you know they were there to 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 uh participate in that genre if you will and, and that's that style of music but to their credit you know their own music you know uh, uh billy joel right uh, a few years back made the mistake of calling them a, a cover band and they went out and played 13 nights for the baker's dozen in madison square garden without duplicating a song you know and when you have that kind of command of music and can do that kind of thing uh you know and 
that's a great thing. And, and, and people love that. And Goose has done the same thing. You know, they're not coming out and imitating the Grateful Dead or Fish. They're, they're coming out and they're playing their music. And, and you know, fans are, be, look at you, you know, you're sitting there calling off names of all their songs. I've seen them a couple of times. I've listened to them. I'm not familiar enough with their songs yet to be able to call them by name. But, you know, at some point down the road, I'll listen to them enough that I will. Uh, but it doesn't matter the sound is the sound, you know, and, uh, it's also kind of nice to be at this stage when you haven't really like, uh, you know, fallen in love with any one or two particular songs. And so you start chasing those songs every concert. And then if they don't play them, you're like, damn, I missed that song. As opposed to guys, just play whatever the hell you want. It's all going to be great for me. And I'm going to love every minute of it. Um, what were the crowds like that night in particular? I would say, what, you know, was it, was it ridiculously crowded? Did you guys have room to breathe? You know, could people dance if they wanted to? Oh, so I think Friday and Saturday they said were sold out, but it, it really, it felt, it didn't feel like that, you know, like there was plenty of room to breathe. You know, my crew that I was with, we kind of had like kind of a home base camp that we set up by the stage and we were close. Like we could, you could see the stage like very, very clearly. How early did you have to get in to, to stake out that spot? Not early at all, honestly, you know, because I think, I think people had kind of been there throughout the day, but I got you. you know, I saw people that were rolling up later and just getting close to the stage. You know, there wasn't really like that. We've yep. been camping out here for six hours and you can't even stand close. It was like, <laughs> it was very open. It was very chill. Um, And it was a nice mix where you had, you definitely had like your, diehard jam band people that were there you know to see goose you know to, to see trade the next day but there was a lot of people that were just you know people that live in east aurora people that live in buffalo people that just like participating in live music and festivals and stuff like that and so it was a nice little blend of those and it was great seeing people that you know half the people half my friends are like diehard fish and tray fans and the rest are kind of you know people like me that maybe know some of them some tracks from them have heard of them but never really gotten to experience it and just to kind of see everybody like fully entranced by what they were doing was really really cool yeah i think my kids discovered that the first time they went to dead and fish shows is um you know, the music itself is great, but when you, when you see, you know, you can see the level of devotion of the fans and, you know, it either makes you curious to find out more about it or it kind of freaks you out. And, you know, I think everybody, you know, approaches it a little bit differently. And, you know, the, the people who have that curiosity and, you know, that's what Garcia used to call the deadheads, you know, the curiosity seekers, you know, who believe there's something more to it all than the regular rap, which is a great quote. And I use it whenever I can, because, you know, that's really true. You know, I've got, dear friends, very close friends who, you know, have, you know, basically zero interest in the Grateful Dead. You know, I mean, if we're all listening to it or whatever, that's fine. But, you know, they have no desire, no interest in going out to see them or Fish or or any of these bands. And, you know, I came to, you know, kind of a tacit agreement with all of them a long time ago, you know, which is, I wish you were into this as much as I was. I respect that you're not. Um, and I just hope that whatever, you know, you're doing to fill the time instead of being at these shows is as, as fulfilling to you that getting to hear all this tremendous live music is to me. Um, and, you know, but hey, like anything else in life, you know, my kid doesn't want to eat the pizza good. There's more for the rest of us, right? There's an extra ticket that means it's easier to get in. It's easier to get a better seat. And, 
you know, that's okay. That, you know, when we, when we first started seeing that, when I first started seeing the dead, they were still, you know, not selling out everywhere. They, they'd play arenas and, you know, the place might only be two thirds sold out and half the floor would be completely empty. And, you know, there was a part of me that really liked it and a part of me that said, I can't believe that there's not more people coming to see the dead. And then, you know, before you know, a touch of gray comes along and all of a sudden it's, it turned into a zoo and you were like, God, how much, how much better was it back in the day when, you know, people didn't really follow them that closely. And so they weren't there to, you know, all come flocking out to see them or anything. And I don't know, that's just, uh, you know, for me, the way it always worked out, but this is great that, you know, you have a chance to go see them and check it out. And uh, now in, in prior years, were you aware of the existence of Borderland and were you living in New York at the time of any of the other festivals or did you already move? So I'd already moved uh, for some of the other ones, which I was upset about because like, I love the Flaming Lips and they were one of the headliners uh, previously. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't get to go to the, I didn't get to go to that set, but I know previously tons of my friends would go to it and I'd see all their photos and I'd see highlights from it. And I would always kind of, you know, cause I, I live in Los Angeles, so I'm around live music all the time, but it's something really like special about that, that park too. And that festival there, it was, you know, it's like a more fun high school reunion kind of for me. You just run into people that you've, you've known forever and it's just kind of has that, you know, community feel plus just being so close to where I lived growing up, just being like such a beautiful park in general. It was like, you know, I'd kind of always wanted to go to it. So I'm glad that this was uh, kind of my introduction to it. Uh, some other highlights from Friday was I met a friend of the show, Jay Blakesburg, uh, briefly. Oh, nice. Jay. Yeah, he was around doing uh, doing photos of all the bands. Um, he always is. That's awesome. Love that. Yeah, he took uh, he took photos of my friend's band, the Stovepipes. He took some photos of some of my hippie friends. You know, he's doing portraits. <laughs> it's I was looking at some of the photos and Jay is a hippie. <laughs> yeah, but I was looking at like some photos from it, and like there's photos of like Trey Band practicing in one of like the Knox barns, and it's just it was so surreal to see these these bands at this venue that I just grew up like taking my dog to like walk around there and, you know, just hanging out with my friends. Um, hey, do you have any other clips uh, for us to listen to? Yeah. Okay. So Saturday, uh, so Trey was the headliner for that. And same, same thing, very new to fish and Trey. Um, there was a bunch of other bands that played that day, like uh, the mighty popular Neil Francis, um, uh, Sammy Ray and the friends. Uh, but the, you know, the big act that night was, was uh, classic tab. And that was my first experience ever seeing anything with fish or seeing Trey. And we were so close to the stage. I almost was getting imposter syndrome because I was like, this is one of the most intimate Trey shows you could possibly imagine. I mean, it's this gorgeous venue. We're very super cool. close to the stage and it was sold out too. And it didn't feel like super congested and tight. Um, we have a clip from that show. Um, I think so. Uh -huh. They played a very, very fish heavy set. Sure. So they opened with sand and then went right into back on the train. Excellent. And Love we have it. a clip from them playing back on the train.
great tune. I saw him uh, uh, play it with Phil Lesh and friends in Las Vegas back in 2006 at Vegas with the gang. Yeah, some of those tunes are, are really, really nice. And I was getting into a lot of those tunes before I even got into Fish myself. But Tab is great. Did he have uh, uh, his wonderful horn section with Jennifer and Natalie? So unfortunately, there wasn't the full horn section, which would have been really awesome to experience. But it was still an amazing uh, performance regardless. Their bassist, Dresden Douglas, was phenomenal. Um, Ray, their keyboard player, was awesome. Super sick set. Trey, like, you know, Jerry, you know, when he goes out to play, he surrounds himself with talented guys, you know, not made, not necessarily people all of us would know, although, you know, folks like Rob and my good buddy Alex would know them, but the rest of us might not know, but uh, they find great talent to put around them. And uh, we, we always get great shows and it's just how you fall in love with other musicians along the way. You know, you're there to see uh, Goose and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're learning about Dawes and, you know, you're constantly have a situation like this and it's uh it's nice i think you know it kind of is passing of the torch almost and you know bringing the new faces in with the old faces and that's great fun you know that those those festivals are are wonderful and they're perfectly situated for that kind of overlap playing where people come out and play with one another and uh you know put together special music that you don't otherwise normally get to hear them do right 100 percent. yeah it was i mean i was able to be exposed to a lot of great bands uh being at the festival so you know, on like Sunday, for instance, I didn't get to see a ton of people. Um, you know, it's just Sunday was kind of my slow day, but I did get to see the a little bit of the infamous String Dusters set. Oh, they're fun! On. Oh, they were so much fun! Oh my, oh my God! I I was kicking myself that I didn't stay for that whole set because, you know, I'm definitely trying to catch more of them now because they their live show was incredible. Um, and then Mo was the closer, closed out the whole festival on Sunday. And they I actually they were one of the first jam bands I ever saw. I actually uh, I saw them at, I think, like the Outer Harbor when I was like 12 or something, because they used to they're from they're from Buffalo. So they would right. play a lot of a lot of free shows around the area. So you kind of had like a lot more of the um, kind of like the more like Buffalo crowd there f- for that. But yeah, they're they're good little like hometown heroes uh, were, from us. Um, That's wonderful. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about since we are the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Um, so I'm, I'm getting food at one of the vendors and I'm, I'm checking out. They're like, oh, do you want any condiments? And I put I'm one of those people. I put hot sauce on everything. <laughs> and, you know, I asked for some hot sauce and they're like, OK, so we got two types of hot sauces. We got this. We got normal Franks and we have this cannabis infused hot sauce. And that just actually broke my brain. I, I'm like, wait, that's a, that exists. And I'm like, ah, it's got to be like CBD or something. And they're like, no, there's 37 milligrams of THC per tablespoon i'm just like <laughs> that's a lot yeah it's, these are like wow yeah these are a lot of thc in this um but this is um yeah per tablespoon wow they were selling it at the festival and i got a little uh woozy sauce from uh finger lakes premium up in rochester so shout out to those guys for making uh making cannabis infused hot sauce i didn't i didn't know that was the thing but those are Two of my favorite things. So. Okay, well, too bad. I, if I had known, I would have had you pick one up for me. That's amazing. <laughs> Go out and put them on the chicken wings tonight. Yeah, no. It's a good way to spend the weekend. Yeah, especially being in like Buffalo, you know, we're so chicken wing heavy and stuff. Having cannabis hot sauce or cannabis wings, I mean, that's like taking a good thing and making it better. 
It is. Wow. Well, it sounds like you had a great time. And, uh, you know, yeah. once again, not that anybody ever needs any reason to go see a, uh, to go participate in a festival. But when you hear stories like this, it's kind of hard uh, to justify not going and, and, and checking them out from time to time. And um, really appreciate, Jamie, you taking the time to, to hop on the show today and to, to clue us in on that and play some of the, uh, some of the, some of the better clips from the weekend. I'm sure it all sounds great. And most of it's probably already posted on YouTube or somewhere wherever kids post their music clips these days, I just call mine and ask them to send it to me. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of, uh, I think most of the Goose set is online, and I know Trey was streaming the set, so I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Okay, we will look for it, and uh, we'll have to keep you uh, uh, on the show here a little bit, uh, you know, as more festivals come up that you have a chance to go to, you're the right age, and, <laughs> you know, and get your dad to pay for them, and write it all off as part of the business, and everybody can have a good time, but there uh, you go. thank you to Jamie Humiston, and uh, really appreciate that, and uh, yeah, folks, go check out the, the music from Borderland, because it all sounds really, really great. Speaking of music that sounds great, we've got some just fantastic uh, rock and roll news to share with you here. And, and I'll have to confess that part of this is just me being a little bit out of the loop. And I'm sure that guys like Rob and my good buddy Alex knew about all of this. But uh, just recently, Tuesday of last week, Neil Young returned to his old stomping grounds, the, the Roxy in West Hollywood, California, to celebrate uh, that venue's 50th anniversary, uh, 50th anniversary. Interestingly, or as you know, they say in this case, you know, believe it or not, Young and the Santa Monica Flyers served as the opening band uh, during the club's start, and the original sets were turned into Roxy Tonight's The Night, uh, and due to this shared history, Young and company returned to the location last Tuesday, delivering a complete run-through of two famed studio LPs, Tonight's The Night, and everybody knows this is nowhere. So, you know, right there, if you're, if you're a, a Neil Young fan, um, this is just great, although they didn't quite announce necessarily what they were going to play, uh, but uh, supposedly uh, with an audience packed with uh, VIPs from the record industry and uh, uh, folks like that, uh, th there must have been a pretty good hint. You know, the, the Roxy's not big enough that uh, the rest of us, you know, rock and rollers really had much of a chance to get to see it live, but we get to hear about it, and I'm sure they'll all put it out on a very, very inexpensive uh, album just in time for Christmas. Uh, but the lineup of musicians that played included young Micah Nelson, Nils Lofgren, who was only able to be there because uh, he was supposed to be on tour with the E Street Band. But Bruce has his peptic ulcer in full flare up and had to cancel the rest of his tour, which made it available for Nils to pop in over here. Uh, and he was in the instrumental on these albums and it was great to have him around. Billy Talbot, Ralph Molina also played. Um, so the night began with the title track off Tonight's the Night. Uh, it continued to present material in the same order uh, it came out on the initial record, leading into Speaking Out and World on a String, followed by Borrow Tune and Come On Baby, Let's Go Downtown. Naturally, Mellow My Mind unfolded before Roll Another Number for the Road in Albuquerque. Uh, the group of rockers landed on New Mama and then Tired Eyes, ultimately returning to Tonight's the Night to close out the first part of the show. After working through all the songs on the 1975 album, Young and the band went and back in time, uh, picking 
excuse me, Young and the band went back in time, picking 1969's Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere as their follow-up. Well, just as the material appeared on the original song list, Cinnamon Girl kicked off the set, one of my all-time favorites, followed by the title track and a special moment with the arrival of Round and Round Won't Be Long, which represented a debut for this unit of players. A jammed-out eight-minute rendition of Down by the River, uh, and uh, as long as we're talking about all these people, uh, Trey has joined him for an amazing Down by the River uh, that you can find on uh, YouTube, and you need to check that out. It's just an incredible uh, piece of rock and roll. Uh, it came before the losing end and, rang, and then running dry, Requiem for the Rockets for the night's final song. The band ran through fan favorite Cowgirl in the Sand, um, always one that your girlfriend liked to hear and always one to be smart to have on your car when you're going out with your girlfriend. Um, so, you know, the magnitude of this cannot be lost. It would be like, you know, uh, well, he's not alive, so we can't even say Garcia, but, you know, Bobby and Phil uh, going to a very, very small theater, a very, very small venue and sitting down and, and playing uh, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead or maybe even the original Grateful Dead album or Live Dead or something like that. So they have a live album and a, and a regular album. You know, I mean, just absolutely incredible to think about. I mean, these are legendary Neil Young albums and, you know, Neil Young and Crazy Horse are uh, you know, legendary musicians. You know, these aren't just, you know, guys who are popular during their time. These are guys who remain popular many, many years later. Uh, and like many of these bands that started in the late 60s, early 70s, and by the 80s, everybody thought of them as old. What did we know? They were just beginning their careers. They still had another 40 years to go. And how great is it that they can all be back 40 years later, uh, almost almost all of the same players, uh, to be on the same stage uh, to recreate this music? Now, unfortunately, it doesn't appear that they're going to take this act on the road. Uh, so the rest of us may not ever have a chance to truly enjoy it the same way. But I'm willing to bet they've got... Uh, uh, audio and video recordings of this. So one way or another, uh, we'll have a chance to see it. And uh, that would really be awesome. And I would look forward to that. So it just goes, man. If you got a chance to see any of these guys, you got to go see them because you just don't know what they're going to do. Um, well, if it's the end of September, uh, that means two things. One, college football is in high gear, and uh, hopefully you're a fan of the Michigan Wolverines and enjoying their season so far as much as I am. If you're not, screw you, but that's okay, as long as you're not an Ohio State fan. What it also means is everybody's making New Year's Eve plans, right? Because the bands have to know where they're going to be so they can get it all set up. The fans need to know so that they can get out there. And there's all sorts of bands playing on New Year's Eve, but on this show, there's a couple of bands that we care about more than others. And so uh, Bobby Warren Wolf Brothers have announced a three-night New Year's Eve stand in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, they're going to bring in the New Year there um, at the Broward Center for the Performing Arts in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, they unveiled that the theme of the uh, impending show is based on the year of the dragon, which may be the, the next Chinese year and the Chinese New Year. I have no idea, but... The Dead always did a famous Chinese New Year's show every year, so that would not be out of the realm of possibilities for Bobby. These newly tacked on holiday dates will arrive after a series of fall stops, uh, including shows. Actually, uh, they just played this past Friday at Pine Knob Music Theater as part of Willie Nelson's Outlaw Country Tour. 
Uh, and uh, this past Saturday, uh, they were playing in the uh, 2023 edition of Farm Aid. Uh, in continuation of this fall jaunt, we're in company are expected to turn up in Philly and Baltimore. At the end of the month, the group's lone October, October tour date arrives on October 29th when they return to the historic Frost Amphitheater, where the Stanford Symphony Orchestra will join them during their set. And the Frost Amphitheater remains one of these uh, amazing classic venues that I've never set foot inside. Uh, and I always hope that maybe someday I will have a chance to be able to do that. Uh, if you are interested in seeing uh, Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers for New Year's Eve, uh, be aware that tickets go on sale this coming Thursday. Uh, that would be September 28th, beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, otherwise, I'm sure that Nugs.net or somebody will have it so that you can stream it live. But it's never really quite the same, is it? And then, of course, what we all knew was inevitable to happen, uh, even though it didn't happen last year or the year before. I can't keep track anymore, folks. I'm getting too old. Fish is coming back to Madison Square Garden for another four-night run. Um, you know, they're calling it a fish extravaganza. Uh, Thursday, December 28th through Sunday, uh, December 31st. Um, so after, right, they did play last year. After last year, excellent Madison Square Garden New Year celebration. Uh, which culminated in a gag celebrating their 40 years together. The bar is as high as ever. Uh, though they're consistent in tight performances over the ensuing summer tour, leave little room for concern. It's also worth noting that fans have been buzzing about the band's possible use of the sphere in Las Vegas for the New Year's performance, and now those rumors are restfully put to bed. Uh, once again, to secure coveted seats for these highly anticipated shows, you can participate in the, t in the ticket request period, which is currently open, and the ticket request period ends today so if you want those new year's shows tickets man you better get in there and do it otherwise uh, this coming friday uh, general public ticket sales are set to commence uh, they also as always have travel packages hotel accommodations blah 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 so that the uh, you know the upper crust of the fish fans can all go while well, the rest of us eat pizza on the street but we're having a better time than they are because we're there for the love of the music not just to be seen or something like that so um amazing lineup of music great music news out there Always wonderful to see, uh, but we don't have to talk about music when we have this amazing music to listen to. So let's head back now to uh, uh, the Warfield Theater from September 25th, 1980, um, as the dead break out a tune live in concert for the very first time. You know this 
So this is a beautiful song uh, that most of us heard for the first time when we listened to Reckoning. Uh, again, the collection of highlights of the acoustic sets doing these during these two runs in the fall of 1980. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful tune. And the story behind it uh, is even more amazing. Writing credit for this song goes to Elizabeth Libicotton. Uh, was born on January 5th, 1893, uh, and lived uh, all the way to June 29th, 1987. A wonderfully long life. She was an American folk and blues musician. She was a self-taught left-handed guitarist who played a guitar strung for a right-handed player, but played it upside down. The position meant that she would play the bass lines with her fingers and the melody with her thumb. Her signature alternating bass style has become known as Cotton Pickin'. Uh, NPR stated her influence has reverberated through the generations permeating every genre of music. Uh, her, al- her album, Folk Songs and Instrumentals with Guitar, from 1958, was placed into the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress and was deemed as culturally historical or anesthetically significant. The album included her signature recording, Freight Train, a song she wrote in her early teens, uh, and then eventually uh, wrote this song. She's recognized, recognized as a National Heritage Fellow by the National Endowment of the Arts, and she was posthumously inducted into the National Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, as an early influence. Um, focusing on it a little bit more, uh, here's what we get from David Dodd, uh, an avid Grateful Dead concert goer for a long, long time. He's librarian, brings the work of a detective's love to following clues as far as it will take him, and more notably is known as the author of the annotated Grateful Dead lyrics, which is a tremendous book for anyone who really uh, wants to get into what's going on with the Grateful Dead, and this this is a good way to do it. So according to David Dodd, the song debuted at the uh, in the Dead's repertoire during this show, September 25th, 1980, and then was played 10 more times over the course of the acoustic shows at the Warfield and Radio City Music Hall in New York. After that, it made three more appearances in one-off acoustic sets, uh, one at the Mill Valley Recreational Center, uh, another uh, in the Netherlands, uh, and finally at the, when they played for the Marin Vets on March 28th, 1984, in a performance that actually kicked off the second set with Bob Weir and Brent Midland missing from being on stage. Um, however, uh, Dodd points out the song had been around for much longer than that. It appears on the studio outtakes from Garcia's Reflections album as released in the All Good Things box set and personal interviews with Garcia's circle of acquaintances in Palo Alto in the early 1960s make it explicitly clear that he was familiar with the work of Libicotton. So I expect Garcia had performed the song many times during his folky period and if may have even been in the Jug Band uh, repertoire, the Mother McCree's Uptown uh jug champion so um i love the history of this music and i love the fact that a guy like garcia you know who many people you know just like to think as a as a you know a rocker was such a student of music and 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 such a master of this and you know these are just such wonderful influences that uh people who don't get enough credit and enough due for what they what they brought to the grateful not to the grateful dead but to the music world that the grateful dead ultimately picked up on that so many bands picked up on and were influenced uh, by folks like this but uh um it's it's just really amazing and uh uh, a a great thing to see so this you know again you're at this show uh you're seeing songs for the first time in in 10 years and in eight years you know now you're seeing a song uh broke out for the first time ever um and and interestingly because of the popularity of the reckoning album a song that would quickly become identified with the grateful dead uh again even though they just never really played it all of that much um 
So that's great stuff too. Um, before we close out on the music, we do have a little bit of news over on the marijuana side of things, Dan. One Everybody knows that one. Been around for a while. One toke over the line. Sweet Jesus. How many times have we all said that? Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I'd like to tell you that things get better and better in the world of, of, of marijuana news. Um, and I'm beginning to think we're going to have to break marijuana news up into, into different sections. And one part of it will just be real marijuana news. And we can all just go into that knowing that we're going to get angry and want to bang our heads against the wall and stomp around for a few minutes at the unjustness and unfairness of, of it and, and why people who, well, my wife told me I have to be nice, you know, who are, who are challenged in their ability to think outside of a very, very narrow box, uh, try to claim such an oversized say uh, in, in, in how the rest of us live. And um, last week we talked about a, a, a group of 14 Republican senators who are not happy with the idea that marijuana was going to be rescheduled from schedule one to schedule three um, for any good reason other than just they thought that all of the rest of the uh, news and information about marijuana that's accepted by pretty much everyone in the medical community now, um, and and many, many scientists, and what Raphael Meshulam, of course, knew 50 or 60 years ago, uh, these senators from last week, and of course, it's the cottons of the world and, and, and guys like that who, you know, like to go around thumping their chest about how they're, they're the only ones who can save America. And, you know, the same day we're reading stories about how effective it is for so many different things. This time, it's Senators Cynthia Loomis, a Republican from Wyoming, and Steve Daines, a Republican from Montana, who are sponsoring the Deferring Executive Authority Act, the DEA Act, that's cute, which they briefly previewed this week in statements. So basically what this does is it's uh, uh, new legislation to prevent federal agencies from rescheduling cannabis without tacit approval from Congress. So, in fact, this new bill would make it so any administrative proposal to transfer marijuana between schedules of the Controlled Substances Act, as the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recently recommended to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, as part of a re review directed by President Joe Biden, must first be submitted to Congress for review. If lawmakers oppose it, they would then have 60 session days to pass a joint resolution to block its enactment. Uh, oh, and then here's what Loomis goes on to say. Congress makes the laws in this country, not D.C. bureaucrats. And by God, she is exactly right, except this is not law. This is policy. And policy is shaped by those agencies that are under the control of the executive branch. So when the chief executive, the president of the United States says, let's take a look into doing this, and those agencies do, at that point in time, it's not Congress's right to step in and start saying, Oh, we like this or we like that. You can challenge agencies. And yes, agencies have to go and get funding from Congress and all of that kind of stuff. But this is Loomis sticking her big fat nose in where it doesn't belong. And you don't think this has anything to do 
with the fact that it was Democratic President Joe Biden, who they all think is corrupt and too old to be there, even though it's the other guy who's been indicted 90 times and is only three years younger than Biden and seems to have a lot harder time speaking complete sentences. But we won't digress on that right now. We're going to focus on this uh, with Loomis and Danes. Um, so what does uh, Loomis go on to say? The American people through their elected representatives in the Senate and the House should have the final say on such a momentous change as the legalization of marijuana. Well, that's an interesting way to frame it, as polling has consistently shown that unlike the bill's sponsors, a strong and increasingly bipartisan majority of Americans support legalizing cannabis. Uh, but here's the give. What does Loomis say to that? In a separate interview, Loomis said that she personally doesn't want to see her state of Wyoming move to legalize, in part because she thinks it just doesn't smell good and it stinks. Folks, this is an elected, an elected senator to the United States Senate telling us that she wants her policy on this to be based on the fact that she thinks it stinks and doesn't smell good. My Lord, what have we sunk to as a country? Um, people in her state smoke marijuana like it's going out of style. I know people in Wyoming. I've been to Wyoming. And Senator, you don't know the people from Wyoming if you think that they are afraid that marijuana smells bad and stinks. I mean, come on. This is such paternalism coming across as we know better than you. It's not safe. So here's what uh, Loomis goes on to say. The Biden's administration rushed to reschedule marijuana without compelling scientific evidence appears to be political and not what's best for the American people, which was the same thing that these folks, uh, the 14 GOP House and Senate colleagues said last week. Well, wait a second. What the hell is she talking about? Does she not read all of these studies and new studies and new studies that we all find? I'm no genius. I do not have a paid congressional staff working for me. It's just me. And Dan helps too. And I read the articles and I see what's going on. And every organization out there that's doing a study says marijuana is good. Marijuana is positive. Marijuana lowers health insurance premiums. Marijuana lowers medical costs. Marijuana lowers dependency on opioids and alcohol and cigarettes. Marijuana increases blood flow. Marijuana is good for cognitive skill. Marijuana is good for so many things. And she's going to sit here and say, without compelling scientific evidence, who are you, lady? Who gave you the right to come out here and lie about this stuff that the rest of us want to use? You want to talk political? We've talked political. Our president, the president we've elected to be the president of the United States, has made a decision that as the head of the executive branch, which oversees the administrative agencies, this is what they're going to do. Get the hell out of that lane and go back to doing what you're doing, which is probably sleeping on the floor during speeches. Because if you weren't, maybe you'd know a little bit more about this. And then Danes, of course, chimes in to say, while I disagree with being marijuana being legalized in Montana, the people spoke at the ballot box, and I respect that decision. However, I'm firmly opposed to legalization or descheduling at the federal level without congressional input. What? Excuse me? You just got done saying you're in favor of it because the people who you represent vote and support, but that doesn't translate to support on the federal level. The people in your state just told you what they want. What are you going to do? Say, well, I know you approved it on the state level, fine citizens of Montana, but do you also want it on the federal level? Well, yeah. Right? Why not? It's better for the dispensaries. It's better for the consumers. It's better for everybody. I mean, really, the, the, the way that they twist themselves up at the knots, the Republicans, what the hell is going on here? What are they thinking about? 
I don't know. But let's move on because uh, we don't have a lot of time. But uh, this is one that, uh, that Dan sent around, and I just think that it merits mentioning really fast because the headline is very misleading. In a historic move, Congressional Committee removes cannabis use as barrier to Fed jobs. Schumer advances banking reform. Oh, my God. You see this? You say, this is awesome. Now, if I want to get a federal job, I no longer have to worry about the federal government poking their nose around to see if I smoke marijuana. Oh, but a closer read of it reveals what's really going on here. The legislation would prevent prior marijuana use from becoming grounds for being found unsuitable for federal jobs. Right now, the law basically is is if you've ever used marijuana, you're not suitable for any kind of a federal job because you're a security risk for reasons that nobody in their right mind can explain to you. But that's just the way it is. As dozens and dozens of members of Congress and wherever, you know, get taken down all the time, uh, you know, for improper money laundering or schemes or whatever it might be. Uh, We're we're going around worried about the people who smoke marijuana, right? But so now what they're saying is, uh, if you've smoked previously, now we'll let you come in and work for us. Why? How thoughtful, folks. That That's just wonderful. We've seen the light. We've turned the corner. We've come to live the life you want us to live, and now you tell us it's okay. You know, that's not the way it works. So when this bill, uh, which would originally um, have uh, basically removed uh, even current use as a risk, uh, House members adopted an amendment from committee chair James Comer, Republican Kentucky, and supported by Nancy Mace, Republican South Carolina. Um, you know, Nancy Mace, of course, you may recall, is the one who's screaming about all this evidence that exists to impeach President Biden. And when people ask her to recite the evidence, she screams, if you're too stupid to see the evidence. And it always reminds me of the book, The Emperor in His New Clothes, because my son, right when I read it for him and he was three years old, couldn't understand how intellectual grown people looking at a naked man couldn't tell that he was naked and pretended that he was wearing clothes just because he said so. But Nancy Mace plays the same games. And so she's doing it right here. They successfully proposed that employment protections would be reserved only for those who once consumed marijuana, while those who were consuming at the moment should not be eligible for either federal employment or security clearance. Why? Who knows? They don't say Normal had a pushback on that, though. Normal says, while it's disappointing that the committee did not see fit to stop federal agencies from discriminating against those responsible adults and patients who are current consumers of cannabis, Their legislation will nonetheless open up new opportunities to millions of Americans, increase the talent pool available to federal employers, and ultimately make our country safer. Yeah, but it's still fucked up because they're still playing doorkeeper. So, right, get this straight. If you're a raging alcoholic who goes out to bars and hits on women who turn out to be Russian spies, but you can't control your drinking, no problem, man. We will take you on and we'll tell you every government secret that there is. But if you like to go home at night and smoke a joint or do a few bong hits or maybe even do one in the morning, all of a sudden it's too great of a risk and we can't have anything to do with you. Guys, again, come on, man. It doesn't always have to be Republicans, and yet somehow it seems like it always is. Pull your heads out of your ass on this one, guys. Just stop fighting this losing battle, please. Stop with this whole paternalistic, we know what's best, we know what's good, because the truth is you don't, and we're all sick and tired of it. So that's enough marijuana news today. One of these weeks, we're going to have some marijuana news that's, you know, smiley and feel good and that everybody's happy to listen to, and not these putzes going around, you know, whatever, doing what they do. But here's something that is going to make you feel good because we're running out of time and we're swinging back hard to the end of this music. And what we're going to play you here is the last song of the acoustic set. It's an amazing tune. It's Ripple. It's everybody's favorite Grateful Dead song of all time. It's one of the three magical tunes that 
Robert Hunter wrote on the same afternoon in London in 1970, along with Broke Down Palace and To Lay Me Down. We talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, between 70 and 71, the dead played this tune ripple a number of times, both electric and acoustic, before for putting the songs in mothballs until 1980, when, as you'll see, they pulled it out here. So the dead performed Ripple a whopping 27 times acoustically in 1980, and then once again unplugged in 1981. Otherwise, it disappeared from the repertoire for the final 14 years of the band's career, with one notable exception. We've talked about it. September 3rd, 1983, the dead busted out an electric Ripple for the first time in 17 years in the Cap Center in Washington, D.C., for what would be the final performance of the tune. As the story goes, which is still unconfirmed, the band was approached by the Make-A-Wish Foundation with a request from a young fan dying of cancer. The dead were asked to perform Ripple at their September 3rd, 1988 show uh, in Landover, Maryland. Jerry Garcia and company honored the request by ending the evening with the tender ballad uh, as a second encore. Ripple hadn't been played in any form in 459 shows, and it had been 1,113 performances since the last electric version of the American Beauty Stunner, which took place at New York City's Fillmore East. As you can imagine, the crowd goes absolutely apeshit at the moment. The Ripple bursts out and begins. It was also the night, the story I've told, but I'll tell it again anyway. My rehearsal dinner for my wedding weekend in Chicago and all of my good deadhead buddies were there celebrating with my wife and me. And much later that night, after it was finally posted on to the 1-800-RUN-DEAD call-in line, and we heard that there had been a second encore and they had played Ripple. I got a lot of grief from my friends uh, uh, over the next couple of days. It was still great to have them there, uh, you know, even though most of them probably would have been at the Cap Center and, and could have seen that show. Um, on the other hand, it was the second encore, and there's all sorts of stories of people who walked out early uh, and missed it, and, you know, that's just why you always stay on the bus until the comes to a complete stop and the light goes on to take off your seatbelt and to stand up and walk out. No way, better way to end any show, including this one. So thank you again to Jamie Humiston for joining us today and giving us some insight on Borderland. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, great shows abound in the future. Great concerts coming up. Big things happening in the world of marijuana. Um, in the meantime, enjoy your week. Uh, stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. Still water when there is no pillow toss, no wind to blow. You who choose to lead must follow, but if you fall, you fall alone. If you should stand.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodCon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.